Section 1 of Charles James Fox. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. Chapter 1. Fox as a Tory, 1749-1774, Part 1. Mr. Fox never had any principle. Il n'a nul espèce de principe, et il regarde avec pitié tous ceux qui en ont. Such were the criticisms passed on the public and private conduct of Charles James Fox in the height of his parliamentary fame, by no mean judges of human nature, George III and Madame de Defont. From the damaging effect of these criticisms, Fox's reputation never yet has been, nor indeed can be, wholly freed. Despite his brilliant services to the Whig party, despite the magic sway of his eloquence, despite the rare gifts of his singularly winning nature, there hangs over his career from first to last, like a storm cloud on a sunny April sky, the dark shadow of an unprincipled life. The reason is not far to seek. He was a spoiled child from the cradle to the grave. Petted and indulged by his father in his childhood, he was petted and indulged by his party in his maturity. Even his opponents could hardly believe him to be in earnest, and after having been for an hour the object of his most trenchant vituperation, Lord North would be content to reply with a good-natured joke. It was not to be wondered at that under such circumstances Fox found it difficult to take politics seriously, and to look at them in any other light than a game as interesting and less expensive than Faro or Cannes. A gambler at Brooks, he was a gambler at St. Stephen's. He played as recklessly in one place as in the other. In both places, much of his recklessness was due to the training he had received from his father. Never was son more obedient, never had son less cause for his obedience. Deliberately educated in vice from a schoolboy, laughed out of any scruples which might struggle to the surface, encouraged to indulge every whim and every desire, he could not but lose the niceness of moral judgment and could not but fail to appreciate the importance of moral principle. To Lord Holland belongs the infamous distinction of having been among the most corrupt of fathers as well as the most corrupt of the statesmen of his time. Born on the 24th of January, 1749, Charles Fox was sent to Eton in the autumn of 1758, but he had not been five years at school before he was taken by his father on a tour to Spa and Paris, and at the age of fourteen was introduced by him to the witty and abandoned society of gamblers and debauchees in which Lord Holland then lived. In 1764 he attained the dignity of a sixth-form boy, but in the autumn of that year he left Eton for Oxford, and matriculated as a commoner of Hartford College at what would now be considered the ridiculously early age of fifteen. Two years more divided between hard work at Oxford and dissipation at Paris, 
sufficed to complete his education as far as the university was concerned another two years of continental travel chiefly spent in paris and italy gave him a considerable knowledge of foreign languages and a thorough acquaintance with the lower aspects of parisian life at the age of nineteen when most men nowadays are just entering on their university career and are beginning to realize the existence of logic and of ethics charles fox was returned for the pocket borough of midhurst and stepped out on the parliamentary arena in the spring of seventeen sixty nine an accomplished scholar a versatile man of the world and a finished rake he had many of the qualifications necessary for a successful politician gifted by nature with a fine presence and a figure which if portly was not as yet gross he had done much to improve his natural advantages his voice rich melodious and strong had been carefully trained on the amateur stage to express the nicest gradations of thought and feeling his reason vigorous and clear had acquired at oxford enough of the discipline of mathematics to become logical and not enough to become narrow his taste formed by eton scholarship and his own lifelong preference on the great classical writers was enriched by an extensive and intimate acquaintance with french and italian literature his memory was singularly keen and retentive even pitt could not more aptly point his arguments with the appropriate classical sentence so dear to the man of education of those days or turn the laugh against his adversary by a well-capped quotation no one could ruffle the even serenity of his temper few could resist the attractiveness of his address such was charles james fox at his entrance into political life in seventeen sixty nine with all a young man's heedlessness of consequences and love of excitement with more than his share of generous instincts and ambitious aims natural to his time of life he at once plunged impetuously into the fray espoused without thought the party of his father took the house by storm by his first important speech and soon pushed himself into the front rank of the most uncompromising defenders of the king and the prerogative the champion was sorely needed for nine years george the third had been working with stubborn pertinacity to effect the overthrow of the whig oligarchy which had for so long ruled england in the name of the king the attempt at first sight seemed hopeless enough what could a young man of narrow intellect and limited experience do against a party bound together by every tie of political tradition and family connection and resting securely on a basis of scientific parliamentary organization what could even a king do whom all the world believed to be a tool in the hands of a profligate mother and an unprincipled favourite against a statesman who had just added two continents to the dominions of the british crown and was the greatest orator england had known since the days of pym but george the third was not the man to be dazzled by the glory of a career even like that of chatham he had the perseverance and the courage of a typical john bull curiously unable to understand the motives or feelings of others he looked upon all those who disagreed with him or thwarted him as personal enemies his mind limited but tenacious 
was singularly alive to his own interests his pluck largely compounded of pride and of obstinacy forbade him to know when he was beaten but over those lower qualities ruled with absolute sway a conscience which if always narrow and often ignorant was at any rate true and sincere honesty of purpose is the distinguishing characteristic of george the third it is easy to point out the deficiencies of a character which from a high sense of moral duty soiled itself in shameless and conspicuous corruption it is easy to sneer at a conscience which on principle excluded from its trust a chatham or a rockingham and folded to its breast sir francis dashwood and lord sandwich it is easy to say that consistency in politics is a virtue often closely allied with stupidity and prejudice to such criticisms george the third must fairly plead guilty stupid prejudiced and narrow he was utterly unable to rise either in moral or intellectual conception above the opinions of his age but he never deliberately sank below them he did honestly and fearlessly what he conceived to be right and never once did in the course of one of the longest political lives known in english history what he knew to be wrong there are not many statesmen of the eighteenth century of whom the same can be said to george the third the whig oligarchy was a tyrant which was slowly crushing the life out of the constitution chatham was an all-powerful dictator who overshadowed the legitimate influence of the crown as long as the two were united the liberties of englishmen and the rights of the crown were alike at stake there was something to be said for this view with the passing away of all chance of a stuart restoration had passed away the necessity for whig ascendancy there was no longer any reason why half the nation and possibly the larger half should be denied all opportunity of serving a dynasty to which it was thoroughly loyal at the same time the principles which had been inscribed on the whig banner of sixteen eighty eight and which had been entrusted as a sacred deposit of political truth to the loving care of the great revolution families had been carried into effect civil and religious liberty in the whig sense of the words had under the governments of stanhope and of walpole ceased to form the programme of a party and had become the common heritage of all englishmen not even the most ardent of tories seriously proposed to revive the schism act or disputed the right of the nation to settle the succession to the crown the questions at issue between statesmen were of a much narrower kind whether the king should have the determining voice in the choice of his advisers and in the direction of affairs was the crucial question of the day and to take the side of george the third on such a subject was at least as much open to the whig who revered the memory of william the third as to the tory who observed the death-day of king charles the martyr and if the divisions which had once divided parties had become obsolete the new divisions which had taken their place had become unreal they were personal not political and represented cliques not principles walpole in order to assure his own power and to establish the hanoverian dynasty upon the throne had raised corruption to the dignity of a science 
the ministerial majority nominated for the most part by a few whig borough owners was kept together by an elaborate system of places and pensions it was idle to say that a house of commons so returned represented the nation it represented the great whig families the pelhams the cavendishes the bentinks and the russells and it represented the great whig families alone when on the fall of walpole they assumed the reins of government they used their power to further the interests of their connection to a prescient statesman at the death of george the second england might well have seemed already a venice of the north slowly sinking under the deadening rule of a selfish and suspicious oligarchy of noble families from such a danger england was saved by george the third he saw clearly enough that the weakness of the great families lay in their mutual jealousies and he set himself to sow dissension between them the haughty independence of chatham the mystery in which he loved to conceal his real thoughts and his evident determination never to bend his neck to the yoke of party rendered it a comparatively easy task to separate his interests from those of newcastle who was a party leader and nothing more the weapon of corruption which had proved so effective in the hands of walpole against the tories was wielded with still more telling effect by the king and bute against the whigs unexpected success attended their efforts the russells ever greedy of place and already at enmity with the pelhams drew nearer to the king the grenvilles separated from newcastle though not wholly from chatham the unpopularity of a fresh war brought about the resignation of the great minister in seventeen sixty one shelburne soft oily and unscrupulous placed his admitted talents at the disposal of the crown henry fox ever venal and ever shameless undertook the congenial task of managing the bribery department and the ratification of the peace of paris by parliament in seventeen sixty three won for lord holland his tainted peerage and for the king his first great triumph over the whig families but the emancipation of the crown was by no means completed by the substitution of bute and fox for chatham and newcastle seven more weary years of plot and counterplot were to pass away before the king could obtain a minister after his own heart bute soon quailed before a storm of unpopularity and calumny such as had not assailed an english minister since the time of strafford and george the third thrown back upon the discontented whigs found the scorpions of grenville and of bedford worse than the whips of chatham restlessly he turned from party to party from leader to leader from clique to clique in the vain hope of freedom to save himself from the thraldom of grenville's tedious and insolent harangues he surrendered at discretion to rockingham and the whig oligarchy to escape from them he put himself in the hands of chatham and his personal ministry in the chaos which resulted from the retirement of the dictator owing to his strange attacks of nervous prostration the weary king lent his support by turns to grafton or to shelburne or to north as occasion seemed to offer yet through all this apparently aimless shifting to and fro 
he never lost sight of his main object with dogged pertinacity he had gone on steadily building up his own party every change of ministry served to divide further the discordant sections of the once formidable whig phalanx every session increased the numbers of the king's friends every act of patronage was dictated by a single eye to his political advantage in the great questions which had arisen especially those related to wilkes and to the american colonies he probably had with him the majority of the nation as well as the majority of parliament at last in seventeen seventy came the opportunity he had been waiting for so long and so patiently the reappearance of chatham in parliament finally broke up the administration which still nominally owned the rule of grafton but neither chatham nor bedford nor rockingham were strong enough by themselves to claim the seals of office mutual jealousies were too rife to admit of a coalition and so amid the divided ranks of his enemies george marched safely to victory in lord north he found a servant able and trustworthy in the house of commons a majority of placemen and pensioners obsequious and contented the threads of policy were in his own hands patronage entirely under his own control for the first time since his accession he felt himself to be in fact as well as in name a king End of section one